I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hi, I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to Literary Life. My guest today is a good friend, and that's P. Scott Cunningham. Scott is right now in the middle of, actually right at the beginning, of one of the most um, significant poetry events, I think, in the country. And certainly one of the most significant literary events here in Miami. And that's Oh Miami. And uh, I really thank you, Scott, for taking the time to... uh, to come on to this podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I'm must be a crazy be period right now. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but it's it's you know it's fun. There's there's always time for books and books. You know. <laughs> thank you. The launch was April first, yeah. and it runs the whole month. Why yeah. don't you talk a little bit about it and about sure. what's happening with it? So it's uh, it's a month long festival, and the goal is for everybody in Miami to encounter a poem. So when we when we put it together in 2011 with with the Knight Foundation, the idea was that we would take a normal festival and turn it inside out, you know. So a typical festival would be you know two, three, four days, uh, and you'd try and get everybody to come to one location, and we wanted to kind of I mean we wanted to do the opposite of that in a lot of ways, and bring the festival to Miami, um, and there was a lot of thought behind that, um, but. But we didn't really know what we were doing when we started. You know, I mean, you have this idea. The mission sounded great on paper, and then then to actually do it was something else. Uh, but it's been really fun. And and every year we do a combination of, of events that are usually site-specific, and we try and do them in as many different neighborhoods as we can. And Poetry in Public Places Projects, which is really about where can we put a poem <laughs> that someone who might not come to a reading or or pick up a book of poetry this month might come across it. And, and who knows... What could happen from that? Well, and some, and we're not just talking about where can you put a poem. Yeah. But, <laughs> but some of the places where, where where you've been having these poems put are kind of amazing. I mean, you can talk about years past when you sure. did something where everybody would see a poem as they flew over into Miami, right? Yeah. You can talk about that one. 
So we we have two different locations where we have poems on rooftops, um, and they're both in different flight paths of MIA. So the the easiest one to see is when you take off of, out of MIA. I think something like seventy or eighty percent of the flights take this one path that goes out over the Atlantic Ocean. And if you're on the right side of the plane, if you look down, you'll see on the top of Mono Winwood this poem that was written by a third grader, uh, and it's. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm from a place where it does not snow. Um, so that was really fun. I mean, to take a third grader's poem and, and make it so that anyone flying in and out of Miami could see it, but yeah, stuff like that. I mean, we try and be, we try and be fun with it. We want the first encounter to be something of delight and we want it to be celebratory of Miami. Yeah, I know. I remember, I mean, we can, uh, I, I just think it would be really fun for everybody listening to know the absolute creative, uh, ways in which, uh, uh, Scott and his team have been making poetry and bringing poetry to the public sphere. I mean, you did something with, if I remember correctly, you did something with early on with labels on clothes. Yeah. Right. What was that one again? It was the, the artist Augustina Woodgate, who lives here in Miami, came up with the idea of making uh, clothing tags with poems on them. And so she would sew them into your clothes at events, but she also went around to thrift stores in Miami. And just put them in there. <laughs> would just sew them in the pants or whatever when no one so was looking. So there were looking. these found poems that <laughs> yes. you all of a sudden come across. Yeah, you'd buy this skirt and you'd open it up and there would be a poem. Yeah, so just, just to summarize, I mean, what this is, it isn't like the normal literary event where you're going to a theater to listen to a poet read. What the mission of Oh Miami is, if I'm not mistaken, it's to to have everybody experience a poem in yeah. Miami, if possible. Yeah, and I think what what we've realized through doing it is, I think when we started, we thought of it more as a delivery service, and I think the way it's evolved is that we realized that it's really a discovery service. Um, because over and over, we keep having this experience of being out in Miami and meeting people who care about poetry who we would have never guessed it. You know, like we did this, uh, and it's happened so much that it's not it's not strange to us anymore. Right. Um, we did this uh, performance down in Key West recently where we uh, re- sort of brought the poet Jose Marti back to life. Right. And had him on horseback. On right? horseback, yeah. And so you know you have to you have to rent a horse to do that. And so the guy who is the horse owner and trainer. When we first called him up and told him what we were doing, he was like, "Oh, you know, I love the poet Ruben Darío." And like, you know, it's like, you, it's hard to find someone in Miami who doesn't have some weird poetry connection. It's really, I just never would have guessed. You know, well, people don't. I mean, poetry is more integrated into people's lives than you imagine. It's yeah. woven into their lives in ways that they don't even know. It really is, and and a lot of times people won't even be aware of it until you bring it up and it sparks something in their heads. You know, and then all of a sudden they'll tell you these stories about a grandmother who, you know, wrote poems for them or, you know, it's just the stories are so various and, but it, but it really takes someone to break the ice, you know, and then it comes out. So that's really what we want Oh Miami to be is this, is this gigantic icebreaker where we're making it, uh, we're giving people occasions to explore their relationships with poetry. And the beauty of it is that it happens in Miami. So what you're able to do is you play on all the diversity that is Miami. Yeah. And you create this umbrella in which it touches every single aspect of Miami. And that's what I always love about it. No matter what community you're in, you have the, uh, the zip code poems yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. And no matter what community you're in, you're going to experience oh Miami. It's not an elitist thing. It's not yeah, just not. for a, a little slice. It's not academic. Mm-hmm. It's really about 
how we how we associate with something that is so essential to all of us. Yeah, we we always say it's a Miami festival first and a poetry festival second because when it's working well, it's celebrating places and people in Miami. Right. And poetry just happens to be the tool that we use to do that. But, and you use poets who are local poets as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, definitely one of I mean, one of my personal goals is to always find ways to to get people exposed to the poets who are here, and not just people uh, here, but people around the country know that. There's some incredible poetry being written here. Right. So it's audience development as much as... Uh, I, yeah, you know. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you... I mean, it's the coolest thing around, but, but you must have a mission in mind. What is the mission statement that you might have yeah. not written, but it might be there? I mean, I think for me, it's... If there's an issue, you know, a larger issue, it's it's the idea of inequality and, and, and what... How does Miami see itself? You know, because I mean, we all know that Miami advertises itself as one thing, you know, out of necessity, because this is, you know, the economy here in Miami is built on tourism and real estate. So we have to project a certain image of ourselves to the rest of the world. Well, we don't have to, but we do. Uh, and I think in the course of that, it becomes a story that we tell ourselves about where we live. Uh, which is not necessarily reflective of the real place, you know. There's so much to Miami. I mean, just it's an onion that you just never get to the bottom of. It's to me, it's just an endlessly fascinating and beautiful place. And for me, the festival is about telling those stories and make helping people see more of what actually is Miami. In that, you know, and I think that's one of many things that need to happen in order to to make it a more equitable place for people to live. How many events do you put on during the month? So we put on usually on average about 42. And, and a, a lot of that happens through partnership, like like the reading last night with Richard Blanco. Right. You know, we didn't have anything to do with that event other than like, it's a poetry no, event you, and it's Richard and so you yeah. should go. And we have Campbell <laughs> McGrath coming up. And Campbell McGrath on Saturday, you know. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is done, you know, shoulder to shoulder. But um but yeah, it's, it, it tends to be on average about a, an event and a half a day. And some of the events are ongoing where yeah. there are projects of one yeah. sort or another. There are things that, and things that are very specific towards communities. Like we have a series of uh, neurodiverse workshops that are... What are those? So they're, uh, it's these two uh, instructors who are actually from New York. We brought down to Miami and they're doing workshops at Brucey Ball High School, specifically with students who, who have different neuro, neurodiverse... Um, I don't even know the right word, but but I guess experience the world, the world in, in, in various a different ways. Way. In a different so way. People who might be on the spectrum. Exactly, or yeah. Lots of different things. And so and so those workshops are specifically for those communities or not advertised or anything, but right. but that's something that's happening throughout April. Um, so And then another thing that we are doing is interacting with Jackson Health Systems all month in various ways. So we've been putting poems uh, inside their labor and delivery floors, um, and we made a little booklet um, that's coming out in, in a week that will be given to all the expectant mothers in Jackson. And it's like a little free baby book that's built out of poems. So things like that, that, you know, they're not things you can go to, but, but they're ongoing. And I think super important interactions with Miami. Completely. Well, you know, you, you know, from old Miami. Now, when did old Miami start? What was the year? The first year was 2011. 2011. Yeah. And um, for those of you who don't know, Scott himself is quite an accomplished poet. 
he got his MFA at Florida International University. Yeah. Uh, studied Probably. with Campbell, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's recently published a book called Yateveo from the University of Arkansas Press, which is available at independent bookstores everywhere. Yes. Particularly at Books and Books, where we have Correct. signed copies as well. <laughs> um, his work has appeared everywhere, from All to Harvard Review, The Rumpus, Tupelo Quarterly, Monocle, and The Guardian. I could go on and on. Um, but he also has taken the old Miami rubric and started something called Highlight Books. So, and Highlight Books, I mean, you just are so spot on all the time. As a Miamian, everything you do is kind of like right. It's all about, it's all about honoring the past in a way that's so great. And I mean, Highlight used to be the place where I would take you know, anybody from New York, I would go to like Versailles <laughs> uh-huh. and then Highlight. That's perfect. And that would be like, I'm talking about in the 70s. Yeah. When it was really, you know, when Joey was playing. Yeah, glory days. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, you have a way of really honoring, you know, just what Miami is. You take deep dives. So Highlight Books, tell me about that as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and the goal of doing that, was was to make a press that was was not dedicated to Miami authors because I didn't want it to just be, you know, like it's only Miami authors, but more like what what press makes sense for Miami readers or what what books might we make that I guess had an eye towards them being read here, if that makes sense. And so that that to me felt like a more like a wider sort of looser definition of what it might be. But the idea was, you know, to make books here. I mean, it wasn't really more complicated than that. Well, you also, you know, you chose really interesting subjects, like the book on foraging that mm-hmm. you did was big, you know. Yeah. It had a, found a great market. Yeah, so we, um, that was actually our first project that kind of fell in our laps. A, a, a couple people who were really into foraging and wanted to make a book about it, and they're also graphic designers and photographers, so that definitely helped. They had a visual idea for the book even before we talked. But yeah, do, doing something that was really about this place. Um, and the next, the next three projects we're doing, which we won an Arts Challenge grant for, and the, the first one will come out uh, later this year on September 1st, uh, is three anthologies that we're calling the Miami Trilogy. And so each one sort of tackles a different issue in Miami. So the first one is about transit, and it's edited by Lynn Barrett. Um, and it's all nonfiction stories, basically about transit experiences in Miami in every different way imaginable, from like canoes to buses to, to planes. Uh, and then the next one will be sea level rise, and then the next one after that will be poverty. So you're exploring issues that are here in Miami. And, yeah, I mean, I like think... creatively in some... Creatively, way. yeah. I mean, you know... They're not position papers. They're not position papers, no. And, and I think, you know, the, those books are being written, and, you know, I think those are important as well. But we thought our contribution could could be to, you know, create a uh, a creative conversation about it, you know, where we're giving license to artists to express themselves under this larger rubric, which we do hope creates conversation, you know, and, and is part of uh, part of a larger conversation. You just hit on the three issues that are the most crucial so. <laughs> issues. Well, I mean, poverty. I mean, a lot of people don't realize. I mean, you know, they, they think of Miami. When you do a deep dive in Miami, as you have, you understand the incredible uh, disparity, you know, yeah. that exists between the haves and have-nots here. Yeah. You know, we all see the glitzy downtown and mm-hmm. South Beach, but... He just scratched the surface just a few blocks west, and it's mm-hmm. it's not a happy place. Yeah, and and um, I think if we don't look at it, 
you know, all of us kind of look at it and it's not going to get dealt with. So, I mean, that's the hope is that the, the book will be an occasion for, for people to write about that issue and, and, and maybe do things that are more policy oriented. You know, looking up your bios and stuff, the one that was most intriguing to me was the recognition you got from Fast Company as one of the 51 <laughs> brilliant urbanites who are helping to build the cities of America's future. And that's absolutely true. I mean, you're young, you're still here, you're staying in Miami, you're committed to Miami. I know you and your wife just had a baby. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we need here. I mean, Miami has been too much of a transient place yeah. for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm, I'm totally committed to Miami, and I think that's super important. You know, I, I get really frustrated when I read articles that are written by journalists who aren't from here just come to town and take one little slice of it and then make these like vast generalizations yeah, about these, this place these incredible memes that miami is this or miami is yeah that. yeah and, and uh it's it's always more complex than you think it is and and yeah i i think it is important to say no like i'm here i'm staying here i yeah, love no, this we place. were at we were i was at richard's reading last night we probably had 500 people there yeah 150 people and there was a woman who came up to me and said, it's just so sad that there aren't a lot of people who read here in Miami. Which is crazy. And I said, <laughs> I said look around. Yeah, like <laughs> Look, you got 550 <laughs> people here for a poetry reading where I, you could go to Washington, D.C., you could go to New York, and you might not have that kind of turnout. Or, or the book fair, or Miami. Yeah. I mean, the actual notion that things seriously that are serious cultural things don't happen it's just so frustrating to me when i, I, hear I mean it. it's crazy because it's you know it 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 predates so miami it even predates books and books oh yeah I mean, you absolutely. know what i mean so it's it, it's it's always been a literary place it's been a literary place for a really, really long time and so i get frustrated with it too but i think writers recognize it i mean everyone that that i've encountered who's come down here either for the book fair or, or for something else they love it. And they're like, oh, the audiences here are well, great. And the beauty is a lot of them start spending time here yeah. as well, <laughs> yeah. no, which is really good. Yeah. So the literary community really grows yeah. in that sense. A lot of changes at Old Miami, some really great things. You guys got a great grant from the Knight Foundation. And I know that you're now headquartered at the Betsy. We are, yeah, which is super which fun. Which is, I love the Betsy and everything, yeah. Jonathan and Deborah and everything they do there. They're they're incredible people and, and it's great to be there. And it's it's been really really fun too. So how do you, how do you see that as part of the growth of what you're doing? So, you know, I mean, a big part of it is just like figuring out how can we be sustainable over the long term. You know, I mean, um, what, you know, when you start something, it's all you're thinking about is programming and what am I doing? And, you know, we're getting to the stage where we're, I'm doing more of my thinking about how do I make this last, you know, and uh, and a lot of the day to day is is not up to me anymore, which is it's just different, but it's important. Um, and so they've been a big part of that. But it also, I think it it allows us to do things throughout the year where, um, and we're really at the beginning of figuring out what that means. But what can we do throughout the year that will that will deepen the literary community here and the things that are happening. So Well, and the good news, I think, is this literary community, we all sort of work together in so many ways. Yeah. And I think that's really crucial. I mean, yeah. I know your closeness to the book fair and obviously to us. And, you know, everyone, everyone moves in lockstep trying totally. to make things work. And what's really cool is that everybody has sort of their own lanes as well which is a really good thing. We're all able to support one another and, and amplify what each of us do. 
Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's, again, one of the things I love about Miami is that I think it's always had this feeling of we're in it together, you know, and um, and it's not always like that in other places. So, And, and the other thing that I know about you is that you're one of the most well-read poets that I know. I, I used to say that about Michael Hedick being one of the most well-read <laughs> poets in Miami, and he left Miami. Yeah. So now it's you. <laughs> okay. So right. tell, me big what, to fill. tell me what you're reading and, and what you're liking and who's exciting and you know, yeah. people that we might not know. Sure, sure. So, I mean, some of that is lived out through the programming. I mean, this month, I'm, uh, there's a reading coming this Sunday with a poet named Kava Akbar, uh, and Paige Lewis, who are the out-of-town poets, and then the two Miami poets are Cherry Pickman and Caroline Cabrera. So all four of them, I think, are they're just really young, dynamic, fun poets. And then uh, later in the month, uh, we have a reading by Jose Olivares, who's at the book fair this year, um, Natalie Centres of Pico, and then Raymond Antrobus, who's a British-Jamaican poet, whose first book just came out in England. All three of them, I think, are totally different and unique, but doing amazing stuff. Um, in particular, I think Jose's first book, Citizen Illegal, is like one of those, you just have to read it. I mean, like, and if you don't like poetry, I'd be surprised if you didn't by the time you Citizen got to the end Illegal. Of it. Citizen Illegal, yeah. Citizen Illegal. Illegal. Um, I'm really, uh, I really love uh, the writer Hanif Durkib, uh, who's writing poems and essays yeah. now. Um, Elisa Mesqua, a young poet, is doing amazing stuff. Um, the Secret's out on Denise Smith, but like I think they're doing just... In terms of... I think what's exciting about poetry now is I think there is a renewed sense of formalism, but not, not like in the sort of stodgy idea of formalism, but really um, so much thought about how can poets use craft and form in order to advance their ideas. Uh, and so many of the young poets now, I think, are, are really thinking through that um, in ways that are new, but also tied to tradition. So it's not just about form. It's, it's, no, no, definitely it's, not. It's Absolutely about, not. It's really about expressing the human condition in one way or another as well. Yeah, and, and I think it's also about, about accessibility. You know, I mean, I think when... When I was just starting in poetry, I really felt like there was like this huge divide between, you know, this sort of like academic avant-garde in poetry right. <laughs> uh, and then things that were happening, you know, like in, in slam or, or spoken word. Right. And I think those divisions are completely obliterated now. And now they're coming together. In yeah, in the best way, way possible. And, and, I, and I think um, that's been really good for poetry. I mean, I think hip hop and slam have been amazing for poetry. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so tell me, as you know, for, for people who are listening to this podcast, who might not be as steeped in poetry as you are, but yet really want to find out about new poets and all of that, what are some of the journals you read, and how do you find out who's new, other than just because everyone comes to you? But where would you think someone ought to be going to discover? Um, poets that they might not have normally discovered? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, some of it is through social media, honestly. Like, I, you know, I follow some poets and then, I mean, that's actually how I found out about Hanif was I was on Twitter and somebody started a thread of, oh, what are some new books that you're really liking? And I just went down the thread and I was like, oh, I've never heard of him. <laughs> well, Hanif, I mean, Hanif is becoming Yeah, well, now gigantic. he's huge. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean yeah. Um, he's on a whole other level now. Uh, but, 
but yeah, and then uh, Poetry Magazine, you know, I think is is always doing great stuff. Like, you know, Don Sher has done a great job, I think, taking over the editorship of that magazine. Um, Eloisa Mezqua ha- has a journal called The Shallow Ends that I think is... The Shallow Ends? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think I'm getting that right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I also, I, I like seeing what, what's happening in, in that one too. No, I get the poetry. I like, I really like poetry uh, magazine and they have all kinds of great poem days they have newsletters they do a lot of great stuff and here in miami there's a journal called sinking city which came out of um that i think is doing great stuff too sinking city sinking city yeah fantastic is highlight magazine still going so we we it it died as it was meant to uh the whole idea between of highlight magazine was that we would count down from 10 to 1 we actually died at number two, but that's okay. <laughs> so uh, died yeah, early. It, yeah, it, it served its purpose. Uh, we've never gotten back into the journal space. I mean, I feel like other people are doing it better than we could. Um, so we, we we kind of been more focused on the books. Cool. So that's. But maybe one day we'll get back to it. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I hope you do. I mean, I think it really did serve a great purpose. Um, so so you're from Boca originally. Yeah. And did you go away? You went. You went to Wesleyan, right? I went to Wesleyan. Yeah, I right. Mean, I grew up hating South Florida and, and couldn't wait to get that out of here. That makes two of us. <laughs> yeah. And then I went away and, and went to Wesleyan, and then I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years and worked in film out there. What were you doing? What part of film? Like anything they would let me do. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> the cafe just brought us some food. Oh, all right. Look at this. That looks great. We're serving breakfast to books and books now. <laughs> so. These are remarkable, um, Scott, so you know, they're, they're sweet potato waffles. Wow. And so just dig in. Yeah, don't ignore my chewing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was, I was doing whatever they would let me do on set. I mean, for the most part, I was a production assistant, you know, just sort of. You did that right out of Wesleyan? Uh-huh, yeah. Did you study film at Wesleyan or literature? or? I, I was a comparative religion major. Uh, but I was, they didn't have minors at Wesleyan, but I was essentially a film minor. Uh, there was only one class for the major that I didn't take. So it was definitely the thing that I was most passionate about in college. Um, but a lot of it was film theory, you know, it wasn't so much production. So when I went out there, I just, there was, I think the director of the program knew someone who was working in San Francisco and made a phone call. And literally the next day I was on set as a PA you know, getting coffee. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. Um, and it was fun to be in a really small film scene because once in San Francisco, once you, or at least at that time, once you worked on one film, you, you kinda, knew everybody. You kind of knew everybody. If they liked you, you got another job right yeah. away. So, uh, so yeah, I just kind of went from one set to another. When did you decide that you were going to pursue your MFA? When did that happen? It happened slowly. I mean, it started in San Francisco because um, I, I had written in you know, in high school, college. I mean, it was something that I did, but not something that I thought about as a career. Um, and then my, my last year at Wesleyan, I, I finally took a creative writing class. And then the summer after I graduated, the Wesleyan has a writer's conference and I, I volunteered or interned or something at the writer's conference. And that was the first time I was like, oh, there's, hmm, this is interesting. Like maybe this is something I could be serious about. But it wasn't until I think working in film, I kind of realized that I remember one, I was working on a, a, an independent film and we were shooting nights and I was driving back home over the Bay Bridge <laughs> and like literally having to slap myself to stay awake as I was in 
morning rush hour traffic. Even though I was coming home, I was like stuck in morning rush hour traffic. And I was like, I don't know if I like this life. <laughs> you know, this, I think I just want to sit around and read and, and write, you know, something a little more solitary. So then I started trying to get a job in journalism because uh, I'd seen, you know, a lot of writers like, oh, that's how they got their start. But I couldn't, um, this was in the wake of 9-11 and I, I couldn't get a job with no experience in journalism. Were you trying down here or anywhere? I was trying in San Francisco and then and then I kind of widened my search and I ended up getting a job in Colorado at a small Where? paper. Which paper? Like in Eagle County, like right outside wow. of Vail. It's called the Vail Trail. Cool. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh. <laughs> no, you know, I went to school at University of Colorado. So oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of little papers there. So I was in the mountains and I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then through doing that, I realized- Were you writing poetry all this time? I was mostly writing short stories. I actually came to FIU as a fiction writer. Oh, you did? And I switched after meeting Campbell. <laughs> so is it Campbell? So did you grow up with a love of poetry? Was poetry something that you read as a kid and in your household and all of that? I actually memorized poems in high school, just procrastinating during English class. Um, I memorized W.H. Uh, Auden's As I Walked Out One Evening. I memorized Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. But I, I did it on my own. I mean, no one told me to do it. Um, but I didn't really can make a connection there to like, oh, this is something that you can do with your life. <laughs> you know, I think Campbell was the first poet that I spent any significant amount of time of time with who was a real poet. And it, it really was eye-opening, like, oh, this this is a thing you could you could do this, <laughs> and um, the thing that I think I was doing to procrastinate from writing short stories suddenly became well maybe I'll just put my focus on that. But you also I think realized something about yourself that you weren't just going to sit. You know when you were in that rush hour you thought you were going to sit and write poetry and yeah do whatever you did. There was something a little type A about you as well. Yeah, definitely, um, and I still struggle with that. You know, I, I struggle with the balance of how much should I be reading and writing and how much should I be organizing. And I mean, and I know, you know, the, you know, the feeling, I think you've, you've <laughs> yeah, said to me the phrase, the producer's high before. I think right. you're the first person who ever used that phrase to me. Right. And then there is that, I mean, I, I definitely, there's part of me that, that really loves doing that kind of work where you're working with people and inside of a community and making things happen in real well, time. And, but for you, none of this would happen. You know. Well, yeah, who knows? Maybe it would have been someone else. Well, I don't know. Well, it might have been something different. But no, but yeah. it's your vision. I mean, but for you, this, what happened wouldn't have happened. Something yeah, else. Yeah, definitely not in the same way, for sure. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, there's there's definitely part of me that that feels fulfilled by that and definitely is driven towards that. Now, here's a question that I have for you. And it's a question I've been grappling with myself as a bookseller. And that is, th I don't think we've ever had a period of time, at least in my life's lifetime as a bookseller, where there's been so much diversity that's so accessible and so honored and so valued. I mean, just, you know, just look around and yeah. you see what's being published. You see, you know, I never would have imagined that Marlon James's book would be a number one bestseller or, or Hanif is on the bestseller list with his collection of essays or Friday Black or you can just go on and on and on yeah. with the kind of diversity that there is. And I think it's an amazingly wonderful thing that that's happened. And partially it's happened because readership has caught up. But at the same time, publishing now has people of color and diverse editors mm -hmm. where they never had before. Right. So, I mean, I remember talking to a, a writer in Trent who wrote uh, Spanish language 
uh, uh, writing, and they had people at the publishing house, and nobody spoke Spanish, <laughs> which was really something. Yeah. But so, so there is that happening, which is spectacular. Mm -hmm. But the question I have is, how do we also honor those on the shoulders that we stand? Mm -hmm. You know, Merwin just died, for instance. Mm -hmm. I know you had Merwin for one of the one of the oh, Miami festivals, if mm -hmm. I remember. You did a reading yeah, with 2011, him. 2011, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So the question is, how do we how do we keep those those how do we make sure that those people don't get lost in the mix, so to speak? Well, I don't. I don't think it's an either or. Um, oh, I definitely is an either or. Yeah. But, but I, I know as a bookseller, what concerns me is that there are a lot of people who no longer are being read, yeah. who should be read. Yeah. Um, hmm. I mean, on some level, I think that's that's always happening. I mean, that's sort of like the life of literature is that, I mean, people disappear and then are rediscovered, you know? Right. I was, what was I, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was, uh, I think it was, I might have even been Planet Money, but talking about this incredibly successful artist, and I think his name was David Roberts, like in the 18th century, like no one's heard of anymore, right. you know. Uh, but maybe he'll have another day. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think I think some of that is is just time, unfortunately. But you know, I I have to say that um, I don't know of any group of people who are more concerned with, you know poetry as an art form, and, and that includes the tradition of poetry, uh, than than the the young poets who are out there right now, who, who are mostly POC, um, who I think are are leading the forefront of where poetry's going. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I just, I mean, from my perspective, like poetry is going in a great direction. It has a long way to go. Uh, and I, you know, it's hard for me to speak to publishing as a whole because I'm not as familiar with yeah. what's outside of poetry. But, um, I mean, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's like, I mean, thank goodness it's changing. You know, I needed to change. Oh yeah. The, you know? I, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it needed to change. We needed to hear voices that were representative of people that were not just academics in any yeah. real sense. Yeah. But, you know, we all stand on other shoulders. So For we sure. have to look, to, we have to look to the past as well. At, for sure, you know, and I think the one thing that's happening, which is good, is also is that you know, uh, other pasts that were obliterated are getting are coming resurrected. Back. You know? Absolutely. I mean, you think about you know, I uh, a friend of mine just sent me a, a a used book, and it's like one of those old poetry anthologies, and it's you know ninety five percent white guys. Yeah, yeah, know? of course. And uh, and and there's an obliteration and an erasure in that as well. I mean, you know, I was looking at the the book and I'm thinking who's not in it, who are the same ages as these people, you know, poets like Pat Parker or June Jordan or Juana Coleman exactly. or Lucille Clifton. I mean, they should be in that book, uh, but they're not. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that, that we are constantly revising what, what, what we the thought past of is actually yeah, is. What it actually is. And what, what were the canons? What was the canon? And, and, you know, there's always ideas behind that. There's always yeah. politics and, and, and things that are driving those conversations. So, you know, I think we, we have to be conscious of that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think I've ever experienced in my life such change right now, such generational change. And it's, it's spectacular. I yeah. mean, I just love it. I mean, I love, even when you look at politics and you look at what's happening in the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and the amount of voices of people who are, mm -hmm. you know, running for president, let's mm -hmm. say, and how different they are. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, you know, but, but you, you can you can still see, I mean, even on the, on the liberal side of things, like... Uh, 
um, you know, I, I think a lot of pearl clutching and worry that like there's some sort of centrism that's going to be lost in all this. No, it's not about that. <laughs> it's not about that. Um, in fact, I think centrism would be the death of it all. Yeah, yeah. I to think, a large extent. I think it would be, yeah. 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 No, no, it's, it's really, we're at a very interesting time. Mm-hmm. And I, as, you know, as an older bookseller and you as a younger, you know, entrepreneur of cultural events, I can't think of something more exciting that's happening. When I think of you and I think of other people that I work with in Miami at the book fair like Lisette and others who are, mm-hmm. it makes me feel really good that there is going to be this amazing, deep-rooted future in Miami of a literary culture that will just get richer and richer and richer. Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, uh, it, it's super exciting. I, you know, I was on the way here, I was listening to a, a podcast where Dinesh Smith was the guest and I was just like, man, what... What a time to be alive to hear this voice like in real time. What podcast it was that? It was, it's called the Poetry Salon, and it's three young kids. I mean, they're they're young, Fantastic. but it's great. You know, there's a few good poetry podcasts. If I'm going to what get are some, some others that you would so uh, Jose, who I mentioned earlier, is part of a podcast called the Poetry Gods, uh, which has been on pause because they all moved to different cities. But I the think Poetry Gods, the Poetry Gods, yeah. But I think it might because Jose just moved back to New York, so maybe it'll start back up again. I hope it does. But that's an amazing one, um, and then Commonplace which is uh, the poet Rachel Zucker does, which is great. Uh, and then obviously Verses, which the Poetry Foundation puts out, um, right. is uh, is Danette Smith and Franny Choi co-host that. And to your point about where to find poets, I think podcasts is a good way to do it. Yeah, and it look is. at you know, who, who are these guests and whose voice do you connect with? And The other thing that I find that I love doing, I take deep dives and I get lost, yeah. is on YouTube, uh-huh. just <laughs> listening to readings and yeah. going, you know, if you like this, you like this, yep. you go here, you go there. Just I just get lost <laughs> in terms of where it takes yeah. me yeah. and hearing people's voices that way. Yeah. It's kind of... It's very profound in terms of the access that we have now. Yeah, and it, which obviously can be daunting, you know, which is why it's great to get recommendations or find someone whose critical voice you trust, you know, who could, could lead you to places that you might not find because there's, there's a lot out there now, you know. Well, speaking about daunting or not daunting or guides, just make sure you follow, go to, give the website. It- sure, it's, it's www.omiami.org. And then on Twitter, we're Oh Miami Festival and Instagram, also Oh Miami Festival. And the Instagram is amazing. I mean, the one thing that these guys have done, which is just spectacular, is all of their social media, all of their graphics. It's just, Scott, it's, this is a this is a uh, a love note to you and everything you've done. And Oh Miami is you know, one of my favorite events ever. And uh, I thank you for being on The Literary Life and I hope we get to speak a lot more. Yeah, definitely. Well, the feeling's mutual. I'm, I, I love books and books and I love the book fair. And it's, it's you know, that, that's, speaking of standing on shoulders, that's those are the shoulders. Well, thanks, Scott. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.